Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. I want to read you a, a true story from just a few years ago when Leslie Ray Charping died a couple years ago in 2017 at the age of 74. His daughter Sheila Smith wrote his obituary, and when the funeral home posted it, it went viral uh, with so many hits it actually crashed the funeral home site. And when I first read it, I thought it was a joke. It it wasn't. Uh, here's what she wrote. Leslie Ray Popeye Charping was born in Galveston on November 20th, 1942, passed away January 30th, 2017, which was 29 years longer than expected and much longer than he deserved. <clears throat> Leslie battled with cancer in the latter years and lost his battle, ultimately due to being uh, a, a horse's uh, A, he was... He was known for. He leaves behind two relieved children, a son, Leslie Roy Charping, and daughter, Sheila Smith, along with six grandchildren, and countless other victims, including an ex-wife, relatives, friends, neighbors, doctors, nurses, and random stranger. At a young age, Leslie quickly became a model example of bad parenting, combined with mental illness and a complete commitment to drinking, drugs, womanizing, and being generally offensive. Leslie enlisted to serve in the Navy, but not so much in a brave and patriotic way, but more as a part of a plea deal to escape sentencing on criminal charges. While enlisted, Leslie was the Navy boxing champion and went on to sufficiently embarrass his family and country by spending the remainder of his service in the Balboa Mental Health Hospital receiving much needed mental health care services. Leslie was surprisingly intelligent. However, he lacked ambition and motivation to do anything more than being reckless, wasteful, squandering the family savings, and fantasizing about get-rich-quick schemes. Leslie's hobbies included being abusive to his family, expediting trips to heaven for the beloved family pets, and fishing, which he was less skilled with than the previously mentioned. Leslie's life served no other obvious purpose. He did not contribute to society or serve his community, and he possessed no redeeming qualities besides quick-witted sarcasm, which was amusing during his sober days. With Leslie's passing, he will be missed only for what he never did, being a loving husband, father, and good friend. No services will be held. There will be no prayers for eternal peace and no apologies to the family he tortured. Leslie's remains will be cremated and kept in the barn until Ray, the family donkey, uh, his wood shavings run out. Leslie's passing proves that evil does in fact die and hopefully marks a time of healing and safety for all. This was from his daughter. Um, it would be funnier if it weren't so sad and maybe even 
relatable to some of you. Uh, one of the newspapers noted, it's tough to read and sad to imagine the raw hatred this man engendered. Uh, when news agencies reached out to her, all she said was, I told the truth, I'm not sorry for telling the truth, and I'm not sorry for standing up for myself. And then she added these words, this obituary was intended to help bring closure. Although I appreciate everyone's concern, it would have been much more appreciated at any time during my childhood. We're in a series called Hereditary, or what the Bible poetically calls the sins of the father. And the Bible makes it really clear that sin has a ripple effect. It's, it's never something done in isolation. Uh, let me read its words again. The sins of the parents are laid upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children's in the third and fourth generations. We talked about last week that our families of origin mark us for, for, for better or for worse, for good or not so good. And when it's not so good, it can wound us and it can cripple us and it can leave scars and for some it leaves them utterly broken or leave behind these gaping emotional holes that you may spend a lifetime trying to fill when there is sin and dysfunction in a family it affects the children and more often than not the children of those children but i want you to know that cycle that pattern can be broken uh, the sins of the father don't have to be repeated. They don't have to be crippling. But how do you do that? And that's what I want to start talking about today, the, the steps needed for you to break free of that. And, and the first of those steps is going to be the most obvious. You're in a church after all. You didn't expect not to hear about this probably, but it's forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, I wonder how many are just shutting down right now, even hearing that word. Uh, for some, maybe it's because you've stopped even caring enough to even want to try and lift the weight of forgiveness. I read of a man, William, who had a, a mother who was just a raging person, full of anger. She, she would yell at him until her throat got sore harsh, unloving, brutal even. And when asked about forgiving her, he said, I know we're called to forgive, but I guess I never thought of forgiveness towards her. She, she is who she is, and I don't care. My father says she changed right after I was born. No one knows why she changed. I don't know or care why she is the way she is. I just don't care about forgiving my mom. And that attitude might not be good, but that's where I am right now. I'm out of the house, I'm married, I hardly see her anymore, I'm never going to expect anything from her, it doesn't hurt me anymore, so I just don't need to forgive her. I'm just living in the here and now, and I just try and forget what happened in the past. Oh man, that sounds like a potential Jonathan response. You can't hurt me. I'm over you. I can't be hurt by someone that I don't even give a second thought to. Is that where you're at, maybe? 
Um, or is it, is it more top of mind? Are you more retaliatory? Like meaning you don't think they deserve forgiveness. You want to feel anger, hatred, resentment, bitterness, because you think that's what they deserve. To forgive would be to you like, you know, blowing off what happened, trivializing it, giving, giving them a pass or letting them off the hook. It just, it doesn't seem fair or right or even good or just to forgive. So everything within you uh, not only resists it, but you're actually repulsed by the idea of it. Um, maybe you're visiting today. You, you, you may have questions about forgiveness, questions about the cross of Jesus and how this all relates. Maybe you come from an Islamic tradition, for instance, and you'd, you'd be tempted to ask, like, why would God need to send his son to die in order to forgive our sin. You know, like if you sinned against me and I wanted to forgive you, I wouldn't make you kill your dog before I forgave you. Why would God require some kind of sacrifice or uh, to forgive? And it's a heavy topic. But let me just say quickly, choosing to forgive somebody means that you are agreeing to absorb the cost of the injustice of what they've done. Imagine you stole my car and wrecked it. I kind of wish someone would, actually. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it might be a bad... Uh, you don't have the insurance or the money to pay for it. What are my choices? I could make you pay. I could haul you before a judge and request a, a court-mandated uh, payment plan. I also have another choice. I could forgive you. What am I choosing to do if I say I forgive you? I'm choosing to absorb the cost of your wrong. And now I'm the one who has to pay the price of having the car fixed. You, you have no debt to pay, not because there was nothing to pay, but because I paid it all. Not only that, I'm choosing to absorb the pain of your treatment of me. I'm choosing to give you friendship and acceptance even though you deserve the opposite. See, forgiveness always comes at a cost. If you forgive someone, you bear the cost rather than insisting that the wrongdoer does. And that is what Jesus was doing when he came to earth and lived as a perfect man and died a criminal's death on a wooden cross. We know that forgiveness is a good thing that it is a right thing until we have to forgive somebody who has deeply wronged us. Then it all kind of changes. But everything about healing, everything about wholeness, everything about letting go of whatever baggage you have, everything about moving on and breaking the cycle of dysfunction depends on this first step. One of the things I've learned is that it is fair to be angry about the things that have happened to you, things that you were subjected to, things that you were deprived of. Anger actually uh, can have a place in your healing. It is often an appropriate response 
God gets angry. Jesus got angry, yet sinned not. It is the bitterness, the resentment, the revenge of long-term unforgiveness that is such a killer. In fact, that's one of the primary factors in continuing the generational dysfunction. Forgiveness is the, is the critical first step in breaking free. So even if you've been closed to this idea, I'm just asking you to to open yourself up to it. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking like, how? How do you forgive someone who has caused you such pain and maybe even when you were at an age that you were vulnerable? Lewis Smedes is a Christian uh, psychologist, author. His work on shame and forgiveness has been really helpful to me. Let me just walk you through some of the steps um, that he talks about. I hope it might even be applicable to your own situation. The first step is to restore the attitude of love. And I I don't mean a phony, false kind of emotional workup. What I mean is that you try to see them the way God sees them, with compassion and grace, with good faith, good intentions, assuming the best of them. And no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, they matter to God. They have value. They have worth. They are imago Dei, created in the image of God, just as you are. And, and so the work for us is to rediscover the humanity of that person who hurt you without um, a conscious effort to see the one who wronged us as a human being created by God, they become nothing more than the wrong they did. That's all they are. It's, it's kind of dehumanizing, isn't it? They're no longer a fragile spirit with hopes, dreams, and fears, and vulnerabilities. They're not even a confusing mixture of good and bad as all of us are. Instead, they are totally a sinful act. They are what they did. But they're more than that, aren't they? All people are. No matter what they did, they are a child of God. And this doesn't diminish the wrong of what they did. But it does, I hope, challenge us to think of them how we would want to be thought of. You know, that is to say that we are more than just our worst mistake or our worst trait. And we are called to love them. This is how the Bible talks about it. And I'm gonna read from the message translation. If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating, thinking nothing of it, he's a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from God is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You got to love both. If that kind of love seems beyond you, I want you to remember that you have actually been pulling it off for quite some time. 
There is someone in your life who you know who has caused you great pain through countless mistakes and failures. They have hurt a great many people over the years. They've done many bad things that deserve enormous judgment, yet somehow, time and time again, you have found in yourself the ability to separate those actions from who they are and offer some level of forgiveness to them for the bulk of their actions. You know who I'm talking about, right? You. You. So that's step one. Step two is to release the past. Whatever happened, happened. But it is in the past. You can can leave it there or you can continually just drag it into the present. And when you drag it into the present, focusing on it, reliving it, you know what you're doing? You're rehearsing it. You're meditating on it. Oof. Keeping it fresh and current and alive. You don't have to do that. You're choosing to do that. Here's what the Bible says in Proverbs. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Now, notice that it isn't saying, it isn't saying ignore what happened. It says to look over it, past it, through it. Quit giving it fuel. Quit making it a daily, present, ongoing event. And and that goes for the offender too. Quit ascribing to that person with this ever-growing evil intent as you reflect on the things that they did to you. You know, in truth... There's a, there's a good chance they may not even have meant to hurt you or known that they hurt you. And it's particularly true with parents. Your disappointment with who they weren't is not the same as them having malicious intent to deprive you of something. Have you ever taken um, some time to reflect on how they were parented? Like when you do that, you might realize they were actually the first step, maybe just a baby step to break a cycle for themselves. And that's hard to remember because you were wounded. But when you see how your father was parented and how cold and distant and unfeeling his parents were, and then reflect on how cold, distant, and unfeeling your father was, you start to, you know, warm up to the idea of empathy. Not excuses, but grace. C.S. Lewis wrote in a correspondence to a friend, he says, one has to remember that when people hurt you, in 99 cases out of 100, they intended to hurt very much less or not at all, and are quite often unconscious of the whole thing. And then Lewis adds, I've learned this from the cases in which I was the herder. And he adds this other helpful word, namely that we are all fallen creatures and all very hard to live with. Certainly not you, pastor. Oh, bless your heart. Oh, you, must, you must not know me that well. I know that you know this. I know you know this, but today I am your CRO. I am your chief reminding officer, 
Okay, we need to be reminded of this every so often that freedom is found when we overlook with grace because of the grace that has overlooked so much in us. Step three is to reconstruct the relationship. Uh Uh-oh, hold on, just hear me out on this. This is the most emotionally difficult step to take because we don't want to forgive and restore. We want to forgive and dismiss. We want to forgive and terminate. Um, But that's not what we're called to do. Take a look at, at what Jesus challenged. He says, if you see a friend going wrong, correct him. If he responds, forgive him. Even if it's personal against you and repeated seven times through the day and seven times he says, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, forgive him. Reconstructing the relationship is about seeking to be made right with that person, to have some kind of relationship restored, and that's tough. There's just no sugarcoating it. It's not easy, it's uncomfortable, it carries a high risk, and it takes courage, but it's a critical step in your journey. Hear me on this, there are exceptions. We've talked about this. You can forgive someone, that does not necessarily mean they are always welcome back in your most intimate group of friends and family. Um, There are all kinds of good reasons that you may need to protect yourself, your family, your children from being subjected to their bad choices. An obvious example is that uh, of part of somebody who has abusive behavior. And if ongoing abusive patterns exist, you just can't fully have them as in part of your life. You're not called to do it. They are the ones not allowing you to fully enter into steps of forgiveness. I cannot believe how many, particularly Christian women, even in 2024, get counseled to go back into unsafe situations. It's a kind of re-victimization that, that God is not happy with. Don't do it. The Bible talks plainly about this. Let me just read the words. There are people who will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and have no interest in what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless. You must stay away from people like that. Yet, yet, we are still left with the call to forgive, often paired with a good dose of boundaries as well. But if step three is allowed, the fourth step is to reopen the future. What do I mean? That you would have the humility, the open-mindedness, open-handedness in the relationship going forward in potentially new directions and in new ways. You can't restore an attitude of love, release the past, reconstruct the relationship, and not reopen the future. God desires real healing here. And, And then the final step in true and complete forgiveness, if it's allowed to go the full route, is to reaffirm the relationship. True, complete forgiveness ends in in celebration. This is reaching the stage when you can actually 
authentically wish the person well. You know, that bitterness, that divide, that brokenness is gone. And look how the Bible describes this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I now pronounce you husband and wife. No. Um, now, having laid out those five steps, realize that this is a journey that you begin. Okay? It is a process. It's not something done in an afternoon. And it is an emotionally confusing process. And anger is going to, you know, rear its ugly head every now and then. Uh, interrupt our souls along the way. This is not like flipping on a light switch. I wish it were. There are some individuals I have long worked on and am still working on. And to forgive, you know, I have to continue to choose to do that. Some of y'all know what it's like to practice forgiving over and over again for events buried in the past that, you know, continue to sneak into your memories. And, and you may find you come to a place where you think you've truly forgiven, some, forgiven someone, and then something is triggered, uh, and the old wound is reopened, and resentments flood in. It's like a, a scab being torn off, and those feelings of anger and bitterness and resentment are as fresh as if it happened the day before. It's like in mockery of the days, weeks, months, even years that you have spent praying for a spirit of forgiveness. Particularly so when it comes from your family of origin. And one of the most obvious reasons that it, it can keep coming up again uh, is because if you were subject to dysfunction in your family, um, as an adult, you are reminded almost every day about your family of origin. You're interacting with your son and interacting with your daughter and they do something that you meet with patience and restraint and you remember that your actions as a child weren't meant, weren't met that way by a parent. Um, you know, like that podcast clip that I showed at the beginning of the message. Or you commit an act of love towards your child and you can't help but remember how you never received that kind of love from your parent. Or most painful of all, you, you hold your child tenderly in your arms and, and suddenly remember something done to you, something that was hurtful and cruel, and every inch of your soul says, how could anyone do that to a child? And now you are holding your own child and, and you know how you feel toward them and how every parent should feel toward their child. And it makes you know, what you went through feel even worse. And the resentment and the anger resurfaces. That's why Jesus taught about forgiveness in an interesting way. Not as an event, but as a lifestyle. Not as a switch you flip on, but as a 
process, a journey, not as a one and done, but as over and over again. Take a look at what he said about this during a teaching with one of his followers. Uh, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, Jesus replied, 70 times seven. A little background here. The going rate among the rabbis at that time for forgiveness was three times. That was the official counsel of the day. And honestly, that sounds pretty good to me. That sounds pretty gracious and patient and loving. Three times. So Peter doubled it and added one for good measure and thought he was being pretty, you know, righteous. And Jesus' answer blew him away. He, he wasn't trying to say... Um, Who's good at math? What's, seven, what's 70 times seven? 490. Nerd. No, I, <laughs> he wasn't saying go to 490 and then stop. He was saying that forgiveness is an ongoing dynamic. It's something meant to be, be lived. I mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier. Lewis once noted this passage about forgiving others 70 times seven uh, may not be for 490 separate offenses, but perhaps 490 times plus, plus, plus for the same offense. He, he actually wrote of finally reaching a sense of forgiveness for someone who had abused him as a child, but it took him 30 years. Is it worth that kind of effort, that kind of long-term investment, that kind of commitment to forgive? Yeah, yeah it is. Because if you don't forgive, you are in danger of becoming permanently broken with resentment and bitterness. Whatever pain you carry from your childhood will stay with you throughout your adulthood, maybe even intensifying with each passing year. Bitterness will mold you and it will shape how you react to others. It will, it will become your trademark. It will influence every relationship in your life. When you don't forgive, you close yourself off in some way to relational health with everyone. So, begin Maybe even take a baby step today. And as you do, listen, God will meet you every step of the way. I don't know if the name Tony Campolo rings a bell for any of you old timers. Jim's Jim and Glenn, good. Real dynamic speaker, author, academic. He tells about preaching as a guest in a church one Sunday. And as he stood in the pulpit and looked out on the congregation, he noticed an elderly woman with just the most sour look on her face. And so Tony decides, I think I'll preach to this side of the church. (laughs) If ever a pastor does that, you know what's going on. (laughs) And so um, he's preaching to this side of the church and his eyes meet another elderly lady with an equally mean expression on her face. She kind of even looked like the lady on the the other side of the church. So he spent the rest of the Sunday preaching to the sound man, (laughs) Toby. After the service was over, Tony uh, asked one of the deacons about these two women whose looks could kill. You know what he said? 
They were sisters. <laughs> well, why are they sitting on opposite sides of the church? Well, because they had this long-standing disagreement. And Tony was like, well, I guess it's a good thing that they don't live together. The deacon said, they do live together. <laughs> um, and Tony didn't end up talking to them, but he's been around long enough to predict the kind of conversation it would be like. One sister would have held her hand over her heart and said, I'm a Christian woman, and uh, my, you know, I'm willing to forgive what my sister did 25 years ago. But Reverend, in 25 years since that happened, she has never once asked for f- forgiveness. Now, how can you forgive someone if someone's never asked to be forgiven? And if you gone to the other sister, he's pretty sure she would say something like, I'm willing to forgive my sister, but she's never asked to be forgiven. So they sit on opposite sides of the church, waiting for the other to take the initiative of reconciliation. And in the meantime, they bring this palpable, heavy tension wherever they go. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't wait for us to come to him and ask for forgiveness. The Bible tells us that while we were yet in our sins, he came to us and and gave of himself on the cross. We have a God who through the power of the Holy Spirit can teach us to imitate him and take the initiative by instilling a spirit of forgiveness and even restoring broken relationships. Every week in Lent, we're gonna be taking part in communion and there's probably no more appropriate Sunday than today as we recognize how Jesus made that first step initiating forgiveness for us through the cross. You know, in our tradition, um, we don't put a lot of impediments, a lot of hoops for people to jump through to take part in the table of communion. It's an open table. You don't need to be a member of our church. Age is really up to the the parents. Even if you're a non-believer, we don't check your Christian card at the door or anything. If you haven't made Jesus your Lord, then communion honestly is sort of an empty act. But scripture doesn't warn about unbelievers taking communion in an unworthy manner. It actually warns Christians not to take communion in an unworthy manner. It would be hypocritical of us to celebrate the forgiveness that Jesus offers us when we have unforgiveness in our heart towards one of his children. Scripture even encourages us to to take the initiative, maybe get out of our seat if we have to, um, to seek reconciliation before, if possible, before we partake. And again, this is not something that is, you know, fully accomplished just like that. But to even say, Jesus, this is so hard, but I want to forgive. No, I'm not even there yet. I want to want to forgive. Will Will you help me, Lord? Can you somehow work in my heart? I believe that's a prayer that God honors. That's 
That's taking communion in a worthy manner. 